0: Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. On today's show, we're gonna talk about class action litigation. The landscape's changed a lot in the last decade, forcing plaintiff's firms to make big changes to adapt to Supreme Court decisions and actions by Congress. To help walk us through where things stand and how firms are adjusting, we'll be joined by Law 360 in-depth reporter, Sunu Sundar. Abraham Musaka will also stop by to take us through the legal industry developments from the week and stick around to the end of the show for a tale of fishing, hubris, big money, and polygraph tests. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson.
1: Hey, guys.
0: So we had a lot of Supreme Court action this week.
2: It was a wild one. It, it was, was
0: right on your beat.
2: Finally, it finally came. The uh, the Slants ruling.
0: So tell everybody who the Slants are.
2: Um, so the Slants are a, uh, a dance rock band from Portland, Oregon. And they... Back in 2011, they applied at the Trademark Office to register their name as a trademark. Unfortunately, it was refused because the trademark law has this little sort of strange uh, provision that the federal government will not give you a registration for a trademark that is disparaging people. So the Trademark Office ruled that this name that the band had chosen was disparaging to people of Asian descent. Now, mind you, the band is made up of Asian-Americans, mm-hmm. and they chose the name to reclaim it, to sort of um, neutralize it. Mm-hmm. But the Trademark Office didn't care, and they refused it under this provision. And the band fought and fought and fought. They had pro bono attorneys, and they made their way all the way to the Supreme Court. And on Monday, the court sided with the slants. They ruled that – I'm sorry. They sided, They actually sided with the leads, with the sort of the founder of the band, Simon Tam. But, mm-hmm. uh they ruled that the that this provision, this um, disparagement bar, is what it's called under Section Two A yeah. of the Lanham Act, that it violated the First Amendment, that it blocked people from getting a valuable piece
1: of uh you know that registration based on their views now bill i'm not trying to minimize the struggle of the slants they clearly worked hard and sure. uh, achieved a favorable ruling here but i could have but i swear i've heard discussion of this law in a like a slightly high profile higher profile context yeah someone say on a, on a different playing field maybe yeah um,
2: <laughs> sorry that was terrible You're like playing a whole different game <laughs> Um, So uh, what we're alluding to is that the Redskins uh, also saw their trademark registrations revoked under this same provision, this disparagement bar. Native American activists have been fighting in court for 25 years to try to get the team's registrations revoked as a means are sort of their broader campaign to pressure the team to change their name. And in 2014, they won. But because of sort of this weird little procedural quirk... The Redskins actually chose a slower route um, mm-hmm. of appeal, so the slants actually made it the Supreme Court first. So they sort of got, and there was this whole thing where where the the Redskins attorneys were sort
1: of maybe uh, taking swipes at the. Uh, at well, it's the, a funny little the, dynamic. I right. mean, this is like a, like we say, this is on like a front page of so many newspapers, and, and like meanwhile, like the legal vehicle is this little case that nobody probably would have paid much attention. Right. Well, exactly. I about that, and but. It w-
2: and and it was a huge, huge win for. The slants, don't get me wrong, but it was infinitely larger for the Redskins because the Redskins... You know, they are a billion dollar football franchise. They deal with counterfeit uniforms. They deal with all sorts of things where it was really important for them to have this registration. They're, they're asserting their mark in like a more group correct way. And, right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so it was a huge deal for them to get this back. And it was a huge loss for these these folks who have been fighting for this for 25 years. Like this isn't a setback. This is a total victory for the Redskins.
0: So this is the kind of case where from sort of the moral high ground perspective, you think, well, why should they be able to register these awful mm-hmm. things? But from an actual trademark law perspective was this unexpected at all it seems like it wasn't
2: no i mean f- I, I wrote a story a couple months ago where it, well, the decision you know, I, was like eight to one right? it was yeah. it was to. of course yeah. it didn't right. didn't yeah. take part um but uh and it had a lot of weird sort of concurrences but the key holding was, gotcha. was unanimous yeah. and um but yeah i wrote a story a couple months ago where i spoke to a lot of first amendment attorneys and what you got from both sides was this doesn't make sense under either you know it's it's pretty clearly said these these First Amendment experts, it's pretty clearly, you know, withholding a pretty important thing from someone based on this idea that the government finds their speech offensive. It's just it's sort of a glaring First Amendment violation. Yeah. And, and the court treated it as such on Monday. But as you alluded to, Amber, it, it always sort of stuck out in the in the trademark statute that, you know, the rest of trademark law, the, the rest of the provisions and there, the, the other reasons why you can be refused a trademark, they serve a purpose for sort of core function of trademark law Yeah, it's of, all
0: about like brands and protecting um those brand rights exactly it's not about this first amendment policing morality stuff, exactly and like you could that. i mean
2: there's plenty of arguments to be made that that, sure. that um preventing the like making it so the government doesn't have to endorse you know offensive uh sort of disgusting language there is a policy goal there but i don't think many people i don't think you could really plausibly argue that it fits well into into a trademark statute
0: and the the filings in this um, in the Redskins case and also mm-hmm. this was alluded to in the Supreme Court decision, um, the trademark examiners weren't great about even that policy if the idea was to keep the government from endorsing these kind of marks.
2: Right. And it, because it's just such a squishy sort of standard, you know, that that it's 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 not even a it's not like the, the other things that you that, you're, that the examiners are dealing with are objective they do not objective but you know they 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 can be tied to some some real will thing will there be
0: market confusion exactly for exactly like it's is this mark is this
2: mark generic is this mark descriptive those are trademark law questions here it's this incredibly subjective question that deals with complex issues of you know of of, of the context in which something's being used and the history mm-hmm. behind it and the way that it's evolved who's over time and asking for it exactly that was the i mean that was it, that didn't ultimately play in the case but that was a big thing here, that, that this was a band wanted to use it for good things and that shows how complicated this question is
0: uh, my favorite filing in these related cases was actually one the redskins yeah did. <laughs> uh, it's hard to forget that and one. they ran through <laughs> all of the things the trademark office had registered yeah. that were terrible yeah and I mean, we don't, it was we a don't, long we list we don't want
2: to use our our bleep button here so no, we would uh, be we'll, using it the we'll, whole
0: rest of the podcast if yeah we listened to these but it was a like a list al i
2: don't know if you saw this but it was no, like I a r- list of these yeah. things and it just the whole page of the brief it was awesome i mean it, it wasn't awesome the words but it was was, impactful it was a very uh unique filing to (laughs) uh to to submit to a federal court so it was uh yeah that was a fun one
0: yeah so i mean that just sort of illustrates how odd a fit this was in trademark
2: right exactly that they they had approved a bunch of uh of things that were arguably more offensive than redskins and they hadn't allowed that and then all sorts of you know it just was very inconsistent over over time
0: so what does this mean for other trademark law provisions there's some related similar kind of things yeah
2: And I, I also sort of wrote about this yesterday that there's these there's these other provisions in the law that ban scandalous uh, registrations and immoral registrations. So
0: it feels very like people the were writing. way <laughs> movies used to be censored. <laughs> yeah, you know, like that kind well, of the law vibe, was written
1: by right? the law was written in 1947. The law was written when a person was clutching their pearls. Yes, uh, you know, yeah. clearly <laughs> tightly.
2: <laughs> uh, but it, w- it was written in 1947, and this this yeah. there hadn't t- to be totally honest, there hadn't been much scrutiny on this, and so. But anyway, the key takeaway um, that I heard was that it's pretty hard to read the opinion in any way other than also striking these down. That alito justice alito said that giving offense is a viewpoint meaning the kind of viewpoint you can't discriminate against under the so if if giving offense is is that viewpoint you got to think that profanity and and sexual material and other things like that that's a viewpoint that 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 they just said you can't discriminate against
0: so does this mean we're now going to see a a, just a slew of really uh, offensive type trademarks
2: yeah i mean you know i'm writing a story on this today and it's sort of yes and no. Um, I mean, like I just mentioned, this is sort of a self-limited group, right? Because if you think about what a trademark is, it's a thing that you're putting on something to sell it, to sell it to as many people as you can. To make money. So the yeah, idea of like – self-defeating,
0: right? The idea of putting yeah.
2: horrible racial slurs on – like there just aren't that many people who want to do that. So – after, I mean, we'll see, Bill. I mean, after I, I mean, the ruling, I, I mean, I know what you're saying, but we'll
3: see. No, I, I mean, no, kidding.
2: I mean, if we've seen anything in in, in recent <laughs> years, it's that people will file uh, arguably frivolous trademark yeah. applications for anything. So, in the wake of this, we're probably going to see a bunch like the way that people went out and tried to register "Kofafe" uh, after that Trump tweet. They're mostly frivolous, um, so mm-hmm. people are going to do it. But in, in any sort of long term sense. You know, people aren't expecting this to be the end of the world or, or that, that, you know, that it, it's not that big of a deal.
0: So a slightly non-trademark question, getting back to the Redskins. Sure. Are they going to immediately reclaim their registration now? Is that the expected?
2: Yeah, claim? I mean, I, I looked at the docket today and I didn't see yet them formally asking the, the you know, their court because their case had been stayed during the pendency of the Supreme Court case, the Slants case. But, I mean, it's assumed that, that they will file and, and that it'll just it's all sort of pro forma at this point. Um the ruling is a complete win for them. Um, so they will get their registrations back and like I mentioned earlier in the show, it's a huge deal for the redskins. A great example is you you can't ask customs to stop counterfeit goods at at the border without a trademark registration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to to a little like a microbrewery in California, that might not be that big of a deal. If you are a national football team with a real concern about counterfeit jerseys, about all sorts of different things coming across the border. It's a huge deal. Um, mm-hmm. So the Redskins are sort of, if there was someone to be affected by losing your registrations, a, a football team or a, or a fashion house or yeah. Yeah. any of these companies that deal with counterfeiting a lot are sort of a uniquely, it would it would uniquely harm them.
0: And so, so now this means that the Native Americans who are fighting against this have to take it away from the realm of trademark.
2: They do, and and. Uh, you know, take it away from the realm of trademark. I think is the right way to phrase it because I think that's the the spirit of this ruling that they can they can they can continue to assert the kind of pressure that they want to, and they can continue to try to seek get the the um, the team to change their name, but using this vehicle of trademark law and using the government to sort of pick uh, and 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 make decisions on it. Um, is sort of exactly what the court said the First Amendment simply doesn't allow. And you can you can exercise your own First Amendment rights in the marketplace of ideas, but you you can't ask the, the Trademark Office to take away someone's trademark registration based on it.
0: Right. We'll have to watch and see what yeah. comes next for that yeah. team. Thanks for bringing that one, Bill. Now let's turn to a bit of an update of sorts. Um, we've talked on the podcast a couple of times about gender bias at big law and some big cases making their way through the courts about that. What's the latest axe? Yeah,
1: we have this is like getting to be big law gender discrimination <laughs> corner yeah, it's here. Sort of sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yes, as we've discussed uh, on numerous occasions here on the podcast, both Proskauer Rose and Chadbourne & Park are facing class actions from female partners at the firms saying uh sort of your your basic gender discrimination allegations they weren't paid as much as their male counterparts and they were sort of had the door shut on them to you know get on big time cases and stuff like that so um there's been some interesting developments as the firms each try to sort of beat back the cases and they are both making the same argument which uh, doesn't come as too much of a surprise because this is just a reminder that uh Chadborn and Park had, its, had a suit filed against it first, and it retained Proscauer Rose to represent <laughs> it. And then Proskauer Rose, a couple months later, was hit with uh, very similar allegations. The snake
0: eats its tail. Very, yes, very indeed.
1: Funny. So anyway, both firms uh, are employing a similar strategy to try and get the case tossed out uh, at an early juncture here. And that is that uh, they're trying to convince the courts that because the attorneys who are filing these class actions are partners, they're not really employees that are at that are sort of at the whim of management. They kind of are management because mm-hmm. the partnership agreement would sort of position them in, in, you know, positions of authority basically. So
0: they want these suits tossed because they just aren't covered by these employment protections
1: that's the way the argument goes and we've we learned a little bit of clarity here just uh, just as a matter of timing here uh proskauer made uh filed its motion making this argument on tuesday of last week in dc federal court mm-hmm. the very next day Chadbourne, which of course is uh, further along in the process had its motion ruled upon and it was rejected <laughs> uh, the uh so yeah the, it's like the question was asked and answered in different courts on consecutive days, which is kind of interesting. So what
0: does that rejection for Chadbourne mean? Because this was just a motion for a summary judgment, right? A quick... No, it was,
1: it was dismissal. It was it to dismiss. pre-discovery dismissal. Pre-disco- okay. yeah, 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 yeah. So, and as we know, uh, and as everybody listening knows, it's an incredibly high bar to meet. And the judge didn't definitively say, oh, yes, the partners are employees right. and they are eligible. He just said, um, we don't have enough to make that call yeah. and we ought to go to discovery yeah.
2: on that. But so, it's, a, I mean, this will be a big deal if, if a judge eventually does rule that the partners at a law firm are are not employees under these employment statutes right because i
1: it's a tough standard to get something thrown out on you know that all the you're, yes you're, they're very deferential to the to the pleader yeah, yeah. and so they're that's going to go forward and i just thought it was that the, the the timing is very odd there because even though again whereas we're talking about they're in different courts and one judge isn't bound by the other it certainly doesn't bode well for uh, at least at the motion to dismiss stage um, but the thing that I did think was funny, uh, not, well, it's, not, it's not funny, these are serious allegations, but kind of ironic to your point, mm-hmm. is that Vin had said, you know, because of the fact that, you know, partners are doing this and they're sort of like very, you know, well, you know, established within the firm hierarchy, um, you know, more people could be compelled to to uh to come forward with suits of their own now if the judges eventually come around to this line of argument that uh the partners are not employees mm-hmm. then the very factor that we talked about that could be you know uh encouraging becomes Undercut an active thing. deterrent right. in the case yeah. um which that's speculation on my part and we don't know what's going to happen um but uh yeah no, it's definitely I mean this is these have been interesting cases from the jump and it continues to be It's the way they're sort of coursing through the, uh, the litigation pipeline. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks for bringing that, Alex. Thanks, guys. A little later in the show, we'll be speaking with Law360 feature reporter Sindhu Sundar to discuss the current state of class action law and what steps firms are taking to thrive in a market that's undergone big changes. But up first, a look at legal industry happenings with Abraham Musako and the Legal Industry Minute.
3: Thanks, Amber. Chicago area plaintiffs firm Anderson & Wonka sued one of its former associates claiming the attorney took confidential client and firm documents with him when he left last year. Material the attorney is accused of taking includes emails, privileged information from a mediation, and documents involving the firm's clients. If you are a general counsel, you probably want to work for a public company a new study from barker gilmore has found these in-house attorneys are paid more than their counterparts at private corporations particularly in terms of incentives for staying in the position on a long-term basis and finally new york democratic governor andrew cuomo announced plans to nominate justice paul g feinman to serve on the empire state's highest court if confirmed he will be the first openly lgbt judge to sit on the high court's bench. Feynman's nomination to the New York State Court of Appeals will fill the spot left empty after the sudden death in April of Associate Judge Sheila Abdus salam This has been the week in the legal industry.
0: The last decade has been one of upheaval for class action litigation. Just this week, the Supreme Court ruled that nearly 600 non-Californians can't sue in the state for harms allegedly caused by the blood thinner, Plavix. It's a decision that'll make it tougher to bring mass tort suits. But that's just the latest in a string of landmark Supreme Court decisions and congressional actions that have drastically reshaped the legal landscape. It's forcing plaintiff's firms to make sweeping strategic changes. This week, we're joined by Law360 in-depth reporter Sindhu Sundar, to walk us through the current state of the class action industry and what firms are doing to thrive in this new environment. Welcome, Sindhu. Thanks. So, class actions have changed a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about what the landscape used to be for this type of litigation? Sure, so basically class actions
4: have been a tool for consumers, workers, regular people, basically Mm -hmm. to pursue legal recourse on a collective basis on claims that might be too small to be worth the cost of litigating individually against corporate defendants. Uh, Defense attorneys have argued um, for decades that the class action process has been inconsistent. The different state judges who used to more commonly adjudicate class action cases would impose sort of different standards in gauging whether to certify them. Then there were arguments that plaintiffs' attorneys were maybe abusing the system, using it. So there's it to... always been fights, right? Basically. Exactly. Yeah. It's been it's been controversial for a long time. Then the law began to evolve in uh, 1998. Defendants started being able to appeal class certification rulings instead of simply settling when a class was certified, mm-hmm. and that um, gave courts more opportunity to start making rulings on class certification issues. And there's
2: been a couple of big ones in the last. <clears throat> 15 years or so, right? Right, right. right. Um,
4: the Supreme Court has paid a lot of attention to class actions over the past decade. Um, I'm sure we're all familiar with some of the the most high profile among them, one of which is the Walmart versus Duke's case, which essentially raised the bar for what can be considered to be uh, common claims across a class. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, of course, there was the AT&T versus Concepcion case, which was also decided in 2011, same year as Duke's, where uh, which basically basically paved the way for courts to honor arbitration provisions uh, in contracts with consumers which plaintiffs attorneys argue gives too much deference to provisions that can be buried in the fine prints and which consumers don't often read so
0: the plaintiffs' side basically saw those as two big blows against this class action mechanism right and,
4: and sort of um, i guess a shift in the way that ju- uh, that the legal system was viewing class actions mm-hmm.
1: and there's a law too right there's there's like there's legislation passed right on class the, the class
4: yeah. action fairness act of 2005 essentially allowed defendants to start removing cases more to class actions more to federal courts defense attorneys argue that that's been a good thing because then they have more uniformity mm-hmm. of rulings on class related issues more more uh, predictability in how a class action might play out
2: so what's been the net result. I mean, your story details this this, you know, this this period of change, but what's been sort of the, you know, summarize it for us, the, the 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 way that the landscape has changed for, you know, what what's been the net result of all this of all this action?
4: Right. Firstly, the bar for class certification has increased. That means for plaintiffs, plaintiffs attorneys, the costs of bringing and getting these cases certified has increased. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the attorneys that I spoke to who is a partner at a litigation boutique in Colorado was talking about how it costs his firm in the range of 10 million dollars now to get a class wow. <laughs> you <laughs> know is- to get a case from complaint to to a successful certification which is factors higher than how what it used to be mm-hmm. even 10 15 years ago where he said it, it would cost maybe a hundred thousand dollars and so- some of
0: that's just they have to do more um sort of their own uh, fleshing out of what the claims are and what the, the contours of the class would be. So right. That's exactly. Very expensive. Yeah.
4: They do a lot more legwork before they even bring a complaint. They don't yeah. exactly. They don't simply recite allegations made by their client. They investigate. They provide a lot more. They try to offer a lot more evidence. They're they're sort of gearing up already for a, the inevitable motion to dismiss. Yeah. And they're mm-hmm. they're gearing up for class certification questions and from the start. One
0: thing we just see here in the newsroom because we write about class actions all the time is. This leads to very lengthy filings I mean you're right. saying hundreds of pages filed right at the start of a case right. right
4: yeah in the in the past it might be maybe 10 20 pages in a complaint yeah just like a presentation of, right, kind of exactly like what
0: the facts are that they're alleging right now they can the be complaint. pretty thick documents
1: um so we've as you've sort of ably laid out the uh the, the last few years here we've got a couple years now of this these decisions on the books and this law on the books what have plaintiff's firms done to sort of adapt to the new sort of climate for for class actions
4: right so plaintiff's firms have said that they've always sort of worked with each other on class actions but now more than ever they're relying on each other uh, far earlier in the process they're talking to each other before they even file a complaint they're sort of uh, running ideas and theories by each other just
2: to pool resources or to be more strategic what why are they working together
4: Sometimes they'll rely uh, on the investigation of one plaintiff's firm to sort of support their complaint. Sometimes it might be that they see a potential geographic advantage in Mm -hmm. aligning themselves with an attorney from a particular state where they anticipate that an MDL might be consolidated. So they're thinking about all of these strategic considerations from the very beginning. You just said a
0: magic uh, set of letters for me, MDL. So (laughs) um, that's multi-district litigation. That's right. That's something that these plaintiff's firms, your story laid out, that they're turning more and more to that. Why are they liking the MDL format as an alternative? Right. Um, Often it... Uh,
4: Lately, it tends to be that when you have litigation involving a common defendant or a group of common defendants, that that sort of, you know, where you have litigation popping up all over the country, plaintiff's attorneys will usually start to, you know, make the case for why all of those cases should be consolidated at a particular venue. It'll go before the judicial panel on multi-district litigation, and they will centralize it at a particular location. And then from that point plaintiff's attorneys can work to make, uh, to sort of consolidate discovery on all of those cases and to try to prove the merits so, of their claims. So
0: previously you had to get your class certified and go through this class format that became really difficult and now it looks like um, the preferred method may be, no, have your individual suits, but we will work to get them consolidated into the MDL. Right. And then from that point it, it proceeds, in some ways very similarly to how class Claims used to
4: right. They don't necessarily have to fight for class certification. Right. A class can be certified in an MDL. But and that's the key here, right.
2: right? That 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 the those court rulings were about class certification, and this sort of sort of avoids that. Sort of avoids the the issues that were raised by those decisions.
4: Right. With a class with a class action, you you sort of your your goal is to get it to class certification. Then you then you can proceed to discovery, potential trial. With MDLs, you conduct. Um, You know, you conduct joint discovery, you pick potential bellwether trials, you get them ready, um, you you prepare those individual cases, and then you sort of, you know, that paves the way for a settlement. You don't necessarily have to have a class. So you painted
0: a really rosy picture with how (laughs) MDLs seem like such a good choice, and and let's just dust our hands off here and leave the podcast, because that's the (laughs) answer, right? (laughs) Well, um, you know, there are certainly...
4: Some complicated dynamics that are that we're so, sort of starting to see emerging in the MDL context. Some critics have pointed out that the MDL plaintiff leadership selection process has the potential to entrench certain groups of uh, powerful plaintiffs' attorneys or plaintiffs' firms at the at the top leadership levels, where they're more you know likely to get a bigger cut off. The eventual settlement amount, and when you're when you look at these huge MDLs, you know that the cut of the plaintiffs' fees is, in, is to the tune of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of dollars.
2: Why is that? What's driving that sort of entrenchment uh, of of that that sort of select group of firms?
4: I mean, it's it, it, it's a complicated thing. MDLs, um, you know, are are inor- can be enormously large. Involve, you know. Huge numbers of plaintiffs across the country. Mm-hmm. You you want to make sure that you're entrusting the from the judge's perspective, from the M.D.L. judge's perspective, you want to ensure that you're entrusting the leadership of this complicated litigation to able hands, and that's sort of um, where the difficulty arises. How do you gauge uh, whether a particular attorney or firm is able to take on the the arduous work of leading an M.D.L. So they'll usually look at. The attorneys' resumes, yeah. How many? What their prior experiences in in dealing with MDLs or negotiating successful mm-hmm.
1: settlements? That was a thing that really stood out, and you did a really great job in the story of sort of painting the complex dynamics at stake in MDLs. Because it's like you're you're like inviting bureaucracy into like a <laughs> yeah. process where like plaintiffs are sort of they're just like regular people who aren't like unique who aren't like really suited to like navigate that bureaucracy. And right. I thought that was interesting, like because it's it's sort of aimed at you know, delivering justice in a more expedient way, but right. perhaps not always.
0: So yeah. judges are then essentially, I mean, they're looking at, like you said, resumes or their past um, successes in in class actions and other MDLs. And to me, it just feels like uh, when you're fresh out of college looking for a job, like you don't have <laughs> experience and that's what they want.
2: Know that. <laughs> we
0: all know that, right? <laughs> right. It, it can certainly be harder for pl- plaintiff's
4: attorneys from smaller firms to, to sort of push their way into that you know, kind of a lead circle. I mean, there are a few who have done it with, you know, mixed uh, results, but it's certainly, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's just that much harder.
2: Well, your story had an interesting anecdote. I forget what the guy's name was, but that, that that he had started years ago and he was concerned that maybe in this new environment, there wouldn't have been the kind of opportunity that that led to where he is now. Right, I bet he knows what the guy's right, name
4: is. I, I, yeah, I, I think you're. Thinking about Powell Miller, who who right. has a small right, law right, right. firm yeah. in, in in Michigan, um, yeah, I mean he now um, he does he does get to play leadership roles in MDLs, um, but yeah, he was talking about what it was like when he started out, sort of wide-eyed. He had just left this um, big law firm that he had worked at. He wanted to sort of go it alone and and make a name for himself in class actions and. Uh, this was sometime in the early to mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how one of his first cases involved uh, a class action against Intel. And almost unbeknownst to him, that, that case ended up getting settled. Uh, and um, the settle, settling attorneys then, you know, sort of invited him on for a discussion and where they, they gave him a cut of the... The, the fees mm-hmm. from from the settlement and so that he said that sort of you know helped him get started and he was talking about how opportunities like that might be a lot harder to come by for newer plaintiffs attorneys trying to go it alone
1: right so taking all these factors on balance that we've been discussing here and you you. Talk to a lot of different sort of players in the market here. I mean, if you were able to make an assessment on balance, you know, all these changes that we've seen with class actions and collective actions, are they? Does that leave us in a in a good place? Bad place? Uh, depends on who you ask. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Right.
4: I mean, they've. Def- I mean, it's definitely affected everyone involved on all sides of the sure. equation. Mm-hmm. Defense attorneys and defendants continue to argue that class actions are still very expensive. Car- Carlton Fields uh, issued a report earlier this year saying that in the US corporate legal spending on class actions has now risen to $2.2 billion, Mm -hmm. up from $2.1 billion the year before, and it's only projected to continue rising. Um, Plaintiff's attorneys obviously have um, documented their struggles in in trying to get class action certified and how they've sort of uh, had to lead on each other a lot more. Um, One constituency that I didn't, discuss as much in my story was was consumers and uh and I, but i did have an interesting conversation about it with uh elizabeth cabrazer um of leaf cabrazer of course and uh, who who was who was saying basically how in her view any change in in procedure or law that makes litigation more costly affects the ability of consumers to enforce their rights um and basically when they're seeking redress for unsafe products or unfair or illegal business practices, like being overcharged for loans and things like that. And um, she she summed it up this way, and this is a quote. She said, you may worry about the lawyer, but I worry about consumers.
0: Okay. So it sounds like in the old version of class actions being sort of the king driver, everybody argued about how bad they were and both sides had issues hmm. and now we've moved to more mdls but everyone's still arguing about yeah, how bad, they're bad about, they are they're arguing and... about how they argue so. yeah it's <laughs> <that's> good yeah. <laughs> thanks for bringing all of this to sindhu it's great to get this lengthy um, explanation of, of the new landscape sure thank you so much for having me on thanks sindhu We like to end our show with something a little offbeat, and I want to talk about one today, guys. that's about a billfish tournament held annually in Ocean City, Maryland. Right. It feels very summery to me, like yeah. something we should talk Ocean about. Ocean City's
1: great, by the way. I don't know yeah. if you ever went there during your time in D.C. So I did. Downy so. Ocean? Yeah.
0: I don't think anybody says it like that, but okay. Um, Yeah, so this is the largest billfish tournament in the world. And we're talking about this because a contract case came out of it um, where a fisherman would have won the first prize, was denied that prize, Uh and then sued, of course. So I really just brought this up so we could talk about some key points in this case. Mm -hmm. The first prize that this fisherman is suing over was $2.8 million. For fishing? For fishing?
1: I got
2: another wrong line of work. I was just about to say the exact same thing. (laughs) What the hell am I doing?
0: You could be out there living the life, in the sun, having a good time. But,
2: Amber, I would then be subject to polygraph tests.
0: That is my next comment about this one. (laughs) Apparently, it's very common Uh for fishing tournaments to require polygraph tests.
1: Right. Can, I, that's insane to me. That's just to say, like, you, weird, right? you complied with the no, with I get, our so No, get it, because they're, they're they in all sorts
2: of different
0: they, places. They are. Right. They don't have, like, a monitor on right. the boat. So if they want to know... But it, why don't
1: they just, like, have officials that are on the boats?
0: And you'd have to hire a lot of officials for a big contest, yeah, not right? well, have, so
2: have
1: a- $2.8 million in the prize? Pool. Well, well, they'd anyway. probably have true. a lot less
2: if they were hiring a bunch of true. Uh, referees. So true.
0: They, they have these polygraphs for the winners so that you take the test, and so does all of your crew on the ship, right. to okay. say that right. you you didn't start anything ahead of yeah, time. You yeah. weren't in, they have like restrictions about where you can be doing the fishing, so you mm-hmm. have to be in the right area, those kind of things. So you can, <laughs> you can prove it by polygraph. Mm-hmm. So in this case, <laughs> the I mean, it's just hilarious the guy <laughs> was denied his 2.8 million dollar prize because they said that he had violated some of those rules mm-hmm. and he refused he and his crew refused to take the polygraph test so it's yeah. just so easily it's beatable too you guys know bad. how you beat
1: a polygraph. has anyone ever heard this you're supposed to uh this little volt. you're supposed to clench your butt when you uh but huh. only on you...
0: the right questions right like you yeah. have to figure out the right time yeah mm-hmm.
1: Well, anyway, what happened here? So they
0: they didn't do any of that. They refused Uh to take the polygraph Mm test. And that's how they didn't get this award. And the judge basically said, this is a contract issue. You, When you signed up for the tournament, agreed that if you were going to be a winner, you would take this test. You didn't take the test. And the judge even went so far as to say that evidence pointed that the reason you didn't take it is because you started fishing too early and that's how you won. Yeah. So the uh, judge issued about a 50-page ruling, which seems crazy for this. but It just seems like uh, too late. To
1: match the ridiculous prize pool, I too guess. Too many pages. The the this man has too much time on his well, hands.
0: Well, it had some great stuff in it, guys. I think it was just the right amount of pages because he went on and on about boat names. Um, so that's <laughs> the last point I wanted to bring up. The, when it, the potential winner who got his, never got his money, his boat was called the Kalinasa. It's an ancient Greek sea nymph from the Iliad.
2: You knew that, Al, right? This guy's I mean,
1: who this, doesn't know yeah, that? Right. This guy's a nerd. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> there were some others that were all, the, the runner-up boats had names like Hubris, Get Real, mm-hmm. R-E-E-L, yeah, and stuff, yeah. Magic mm-hmm. Moment. Mm-hmm. And I bring those up specifically so I can read this line from the opinion. Here, the hubris and overeagerness of the Kalanassus crew resulted in their getting reels deployed before the 8.30 a.m. Magic Moment. So that was a judge's way of saying there was some evidence that the reason they didn't take the polygraph is because they actually were fishing ahead of when they were supposed to start.
2: I can't decide if I find like witty and punny Opinions to be like kind of fun and interesting, or like a miscarriage
1: of justice. I mean, like, I shouldn't can... a judge be yeah. more serious? Than that? I don't know. Well, I should have float between the two. Can this
0: podcast really call out anybody else for puns? I <laughs> sure, so, especially sure. sure. nautical
1: puns. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, disc- I mean nautical puns in we have a legal history. Mean, of I mean, nautical. Parts. I mean, there's I mean, there's no place for that. Yeah, but this judge should be banned. That's 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 my yeah. This might sink. This might this might sink him.
0: He might just need a leave. Wow.
1: Yeah. Take us out of here, Amber. He might just
0: need a leave so we can sit on the dog and fish himself. I think that's what the judge is angling for there.
2: Yep. Okay.
0: <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks guys for being with us. Thanks Bill. Thanks. And Alex. Thanks guys. That'll conclude our show for today. If you want to know more about any of our legal developments we've discussed, check out our website at law360.com podcast. Join us again next week for another roundup of legal news that has us talking. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest Sindhu Sundar for joining us. Contributing reporters this week include Vin Guerreri, Emily Field, Matthew Perlman, Diana Novak-Jones, Adam Rhodes, and Matthew Gernaccia. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassmen.